local products and catering. Now offering takeout. NeverSinkGeneralStore.com. And from listeners like you. Today on the Janice Adams Show, we're taking a path through history in upstate New York. We're on the road to historic Underground Railroad sites, revisiting a time as topsy-turvy as our own, when what was right was wrong, what was wrong was legal, and what was legal had little to do with justice. Sanctuary cities, Congress or conscience, justice, not for just us. And do unto others, OMG, what a trip. So much to see, so much to discover. I love New York. First, the news. Live from NPR News, I'm Barbara Klein. Firefighters from California and Utah are heading to Montana, where five federal firefighters were injured when circulating winds pushed a wildfire over them. Montana Public Radio's Corin Cates Carney reports. The Bureau of Land Management announced the injuries as Montana and many western U.S. states face dry, hot conditions and firefighting resources are stretched thin. Mark Jacobson with BLM says the firefighters were evacuated after they were caught by a sudden change in weather. The swirling breezes moved the uh, the flames back around and over them, so it wasn't like a clearly defined line that they were working on, and there was no warning. The firefighters were transported to medical facilities and their injuries are being evaluated. Governor Greg Gianforte has mobilized the Montana National Guard to help in the statewide wildfire response. For NPR News, I'm Corin Cates Carney in Missoula. The British government is moving to allow essential workers to avoid self-isolation even if they come into contact with individuals infected with the coronavirus. As Villa Marx reports from London, it's aimed at enabling firemen, police officers and freight drivers to continue to work. The UK's recent spike in coronavirus case numbers has caused chaos in some sectors of the country's reopening economy. Train lines, food supplies and even police forces are facing staff shortages, with personnel pushed to stay home by government notifications. Now authorities have promised greater daily testing capacity for frontline workers, particularly among police and transport staff, to avoid the 10-day stay-at-home requirements. Villa Marks in London. In Paris, demonstrators protesting COVID restrictions and vaccinations clashed with French anti-riot police today. French lawmakers are due to vote this weekend on a bill that requires a health pass for entering restaurants and other venues and mandatory vaccinations for health workers. Infections and hospitalizations in France are rising. Serb tennis star Novak Djokovic won his first match at the Tokyo Olympics, defeating Bolivia's Hugo Delien 6-2-6-2 in the first round of the men's singles competition. NPR's Mandelit Del Barco reports. Novak Djokovic already won the Australian Open, the French Open, and Wimbledon this year. Now he's going for a Golden Grand Slam at the Olympics. He told reporters in Tokyo he hopes to join Steffi Graf as the only players to win all four majors and a gold medal the same year. I know there is history on the line. I'm privileged and motivated to be in this position. I've worked very hard to be there. Let's talk about history if uh, if. Everything goes great here. Djokovic said for now he's just focusing match by match. Mandalit del Barco, NPR News, Tokyo. This is NPR. This is Radio Catskill. I'm Liam Mayo from The River Reporter. With the National Moratorium on Evictions lifting on July 31, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania is offering programs to help renters and homeowners through whatever financial burdens they may be facing. Assistance is available through the Emergency Rental Assistance Program for renters, landlords, and utility providers who have been affected by economic insecurity from the pandemic. For more information, visit the Pennsylvania Department of Human Services website. In addition, Pennsylvania has been allocated $350 million through the Federal Homeowner Assistance Fund to help homeowners who are behind on their mortgage and other home-related expenses due to the pandemic. For more information, visit the PA Housing Finance Agency website. The Wolf Administration shared proposed nursing home regulations this past Wednesday, 
focused on increasing the quality of care received by residents by increasing the minimum direct care hours by around one and a half hours a day. This is the first of four intended packages of regulation updates, with future packages to cover issues such as staff development, staffing ratios, and infection control and prevention. The Wolf Administration is committed to getting these proposed reforms through the regulatory review process by the end of 2022. And the Wayne County Commissioners recognized the services of two longtime county employees at the past week's meeting, both of whom work to ensure order in the county's courthouse. The Commissioners recognized Mary McCormick from the Prothonotary's office, which supervises all of the legal paperwork involved in the court's business, and the county's payroll and retirement analyst, Rochelle Haviland. This news roundup is produced in partnership with The River Reporter. I'm Liam Mayo. Today on the Janice Adams Show, we're taking a path through history in upstate New York. We're on the road to historic underground railroad sites, revisiting a time as topsy-turvy as our own, a wholly profit-driven time when what was right was clearly wrong, what was wrong was legal, and what was legal had nothing to do with justice. It's the pre-Civil War 1850s, or is it? Congressmen are weighing the call to power against the call to conscience. Today on the show, you'll visit the home of a man of conscience, New York State Governor, U.S. Senator, Secretary of State, William Seward, and his wife, Frances, stay-at-home mom, women's rights activist, and Underground Railroad Station Master. I ain't got Freedom seekers are fleeing the state-supported terror of slavery. Others are rallying in their defense. Their cry, justice, not for just us, but for everyone. On today's show, you'll visit Rochester, New York, the city that welcomed a self-emancipated ex-slave and released his inner Frederick Douglass. Abolitionist, publisher, orator, statesman, who put his hard-won freedom on the line to rescue others. Oh, yes, black lives do matter, said he. And sanctuary cities? Well, right now on your first stop, you're about to visit the home of a businessman and landowner who put his fortune where he put his faith, in his responsibility to do the right thing when met by so much that was so wrong. We're on the road to Peterborough, New York, home to Peter's son, Garrett Smith. I'm Janice. Hi. Hello. Dorothy. Hi, Dorothy. Good Welcome to see you. To Hi. Thank hey, you. Nice to meet you. Welcome. Thank you so much for having us. Author, historian, Garrett Smith biographer, Norman K. Dan. We're headed to the land office across the lawn here. It's called the land office because Garrett Smith made his money by buying and selling land. And he did not have an office in his house. He worked in this small building. It's about 25 by 25. It was built in 1804 with the aid of slave labor. Peter Smith built it, and Peter Smith was Garrett Smith's father and sold that land business to his son Garrett in 1819. And in there, he conducted all of his business with people who were purchasing land or selling land, but it was also a major focus for people who came here to visit Smith, including people who arrived on the Underground Railroad and dignitaries like Frederick Douglass, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, John Brown. They were all here in this building. Co-chair of the Garrett Smith Estate National Historic Landmark and co-founder of the National Abolition Hall of Fame and Museum, Dorothy Wilsey. As the nomination from the New York State Office of Parks, Recreation, and Historic Preservation said to the National Park Service when they nominated this place for a National Historic Landmark, that the guest list here read like a who's who list of 19th century reformers because of the people that came here. Harriet Tubman. Frederick Douglass got most of his money for his publishing right here, right in this room. You could probably figure out that there was a person affiliated with all the bricks in this place. 
the reformers came, but also the people that were coming from the South to escape slavery. And Peterborough was considered one of the most culturally diverse hamlets or places in the United States. And I'm looking at John Stauffer's name right there. John Stauffer is a professor at Harvard. And when we decided to have a Hall of Fame, I called John Stauffer and said, is this right for Peterborough? What about Boston? He said, no, it should be in Peterborough because it happened here. The building has always been an office, and it was here throughout the entire reform period. And all of the human rights efforts and issues were carried forth in this building. So how did it make the transition from a place of slavery to a place of anti-slavery? Slavery was abolished in New York State in 1827, so when it was built in the early 1800s, slavery was still legal. Peter Smith probably owned three or four slaves, Mm -hmm. typical of Northerners. It wasn't a lot, but he did buy and sell them. And Garrett, as a young man, watched these slaves work here on this building and in building the house. Even though, well, the the term legal is a very strange term when you're talking about buying and selling human beings, so I have to be careful with that. But even if um, it was, quote, legal at that period of time, we're still talking about a mindset. What was the pivot in mindset from being a place of enslavement to it being, uh, as you say, a, a place where people would come who were clearly against that slavery as an institution? Well, that took place through his son, Peter's son, Garrett. He was the one that was interested in human rights issues and philanthropy, meaning he was interested in helping people who were less well-off than himself, especially if they were in some way oppressed. He gave away about a billion dollars in his lifetime, in our terms, and he gave it to causes and people who were in some way oppressed. In 1846, a white male needed property worth only $100 in order to be able to vote. A black male needed property worth $250, and forget about women, didn't matter how much land we owned. So what did Garrett say? I'm going to give 3,000 African-American men of good standing 40 acres of land so that they can have the franchise. Well, the story starts in 1846 with the New York State Constitutional Convention in which the hope of the abolitionists was that the voting rights rules would be rewritten to eliminate the inequality in property value qualifications for male voters. They didn't do that. The state refused to do that, and they left the property qualification at $100 for white males and $250 for black males. It was state-supported racism, and Garrett Smith said, this is nuts. What we're going to do, if that's the way the state is going to be, is give to 3,000 black males enough land so that if they develop it, so that it's worth $250, they will be able to vote. It was cash or land that they had to have, or $250 in land value? It was $250 in property value. In your research of his life, are there any pivotal incidents that he saw in terms that would be iconic of what slavery at that time was like in this area of New York? Not that I'm aware of. I mean, there was no watching a slave be beat by a shovel like John Brown did or something like that. It was just a a notion that built in him I think slowly, too. Uh, He didn't begin his human rights and philanthropy work until he was a young adult out of college. But the whole process of becoming involved in this abolition movement grew out of the religious movement of the Second Great Awakening that swept through central New York in the 1820s and early 1830s. Tell us about that. Well, the Second Great Awakening was a religious movement based in uh, individual empowerment, and it became manifest through the transcendentalists and the transcendental movement, where they saw that individuals could do things that could actually change their lives, reform the individual. They were phenomenally optimistic people, 
and saw that if one could change his or her life by committing themselves to a belief system, well, maybe society could do that too if we plugged in these processes to the social system instead of the individual. The movement got started from that, this idea of the immediate abolishment of slavery. Go down, Moses. Underground Railroad, a time of can-do, must-do heroism and optimism, exemplified by what went on here in Peterborough, New York. But what did it mean to the people themselves who were rescued? Max Smith, former mayor of Oneida, New York, and Underground Railroad descendant. We've learned so much about the unique stories that, that took place here. My connection is one not only of passion but of blood because I'm descended from two families of slaves who came here to Peterborough and never left. Where did your family come from when you say they came here? One of the most compelling stories would be the story of Harriet Russell. Garrett Smith's second wife, his first wife died quite young, and he married again, and his second wife had come from Maryland. Her family had moved north, and before they moved north, they had been slaveholders. She had a black woman who was her nanny that she loved dearly. One day, Garrett came upon her and could tell that she was visibly upset by something. And when he inquired as to what was upsetting her, she shared the story about how her, this woman that she loved had been sold from her father's ownership to someone else, and she always worried and wondered whatever became of her. So in typical Garrett Smith fashion, Garrett hired a Quaker from the village of Skinny Atlas, and the man went in search of her. And uh, he subsequently found her living on a plantation in Kentucky and wired Mr. Smith, and he had received instructions that upon finding her, he was to purchase her without telling the owner what they intended for her, uh, I think fearing that they wouldn't sell her to freedom. And... um, bring her back to Peterborough. But when he arrived there, he he uh, he wrote a wire to, to Mr. Smith saying there's a problem, and that problem was that she had a husband and four children. So he didn't have sufficient funds to purchase them. Garrett sent more money, enough money to buy them all, and the next uh, problem that he encountered was that it was cold and, and uh, wintertime that they were departing and they would not allow a black family to ride in the passenger quarters. Um, they w- the children and the family would have been transported in the cargo portion of the train and that was too cold and too difficult for the children. So Garrett then said, well, that shouldn't be too problematic, bring them on the stage. They encountered the same problem with the stage. Black people couldn't ride in the stage. So at that point, Garrett said, well, I've got a solution. I'm going to send you enough money to buy the stage, a team of horses, and hire drivers. And I get emotional at this point, but um, Harriet and her family, my ancestors, rode into Peterborough as free people in their own stage. That is not the customary story that anyone would expect to hear as to how a family comes from the south to the north. And and um, I'm so happy that you are here to tell the tale. Were there other people here at the time that they arrived? What were their lives like that you know? You know, I'm I'm hearing the period of time, and my mind is also thinking New York State, 12 years a slave. So there are many things that could have happened. Well, there were a number of families living here. Um, some eight years ago, we started Emancipation Day celebrations again here in Peterborough because I had learned that that had taken place in the 1920s and 30s. And I spoke to uh, our town historian, and she promptly gave me um, records on 26 black families that had stayed in Peterborough for a rather extended period of time. So I can only uh, assume that there were at least that many families that came to live here over time. Um, The building that still exists over there called the Laundry 
um, was one in which the youngest uh, Russell child, a lady named Malvina Russell, she labored there um, for good wages, and as a result, I lived the small piece of the American dream, being gainfully employed in a business that she was passionate about. She can ran the laundry for the entire Garrett Smith estate for most of her life, and that's the building that she toiled in. So our intent is to use that building to tell those stories of those black families who came here looking for a better life and those who even passed through on their way to Canada and other places. But I can also state that, you know, simply from things like looking at you know, pictures of, of my relatives as they came through high school, there, were, there, were, there was a level of integration which took place in Peterborough, which was unlike anything in any of the surrounding areas. Garrett believed passionately in human rights and saw all people as equal, and he treated them all in that same fashion. When Israel was in Egypt's land, let my people go. What most people call spirituals, I call the slave songs. Because when they adopted Christianity, the religion which was not certainly germane to them, they took those messages about crossing over Jordan or going somewhere where there would be peace and solace and all of that stuff, and they embraced it. And they could sing about that where they couldn't sing about other things. So I sing those songs, I guess, a lot as a reflection of their spirit, and it, it makes me feel like I connect with them. Oppressed so hard they could not stand, let my people go. What are you thinking as you sing that song? <laughs> I'm thinking about how unique and at times painful it is to realize that I was born and raised in a nation that for hundreds of years has struggled with accepting me as a fully participating, fully deserving American. And this is why Peterborough continues to be relevant. We must remember this history and that we stand on the shoulders and on the foundation built by the Harriet Tubmans and the Frederick Douglasses and the Garrett Smiths. Go down, Moses, way down in Egypt land, tell old More in our travels on our path through history in upstate New York after the break. This is Ari Shapiro with NPR. People collect all sorts of things. Stamps, antique lamps, sports memorabilia. If you happen to collect cars and you're looking to make room for some new additions, look no further than this station. Pickup is free and you're helping make your favorite NPR programs possible. Learn more about it on this station's website and thank you in advance for thinking about helping public radio. Go to WJFFradio.org. Hey, it's Francis Lamb, host of The Splendid Table. This week, we're all about the iconic Claudia Rodin, who helped introduce the food of the Middle East to the English-speaking world. We talk with Claudia herself, and we talk with one of her biggest fans, Yotam Odolenghi. It's coming up on The Splendid Table. Sunday at noon on Radio Catskill. We're back here on The Janice Adams Show. We're traveling a path through history in upstate New York and on our way to Auburn. Good morning. My name is Billy Chabot. I'm the executive director of the Seward House Museum here in Auburn, New York. The Seward House Museum is the family home of William Henry Seward, the home was built in 1816, and three generations of Seward family members lived here. William Seward, 
Governor of New York, Senator from New York, Secretary of State and President Abraham Lincoln's cabinet, that team of rivals. The night the president was assassinated at Ford's Theater, Seward was also brutally attacked by pro-slavists. He almost died. His landmark home tells the story of how he lived. It's a really interesting story about the Underground Railroad and Seward's connection with the Underground Railroad. In fact, it's his wife, Frances Seward, who is most active in the movement. Uh, You would consider Frances a staunch abolitionist, while Seward had more of a moderate approach. But we do know that during the 1850s, the home was used as a stop on the Underground Railroad. It is documented. So we have that story, that primary documentation that tells that story. Um, And at this time, Seward is a United States senator. And to be harboring um, escaped slaves uh, would have been considered an act of treason. So he was really taking a great risk. The time that you're speaking about is, therefore, after the Fugitive Slave Law. Do we have any stories about how he viewed that divide for himself? We have lots of documentation. The Seward family were really voracious in their writing of letters back and forth to each other in keeping of diaries. And it is really Frances that writes to her husband often arguing that he's, that he take a harder approach to the slavery issue. He will make speeches and call it uh, the irrepressible conflict that will eventually come to the fore. Um, but Seward has even a, a longer history dating back before this time where he's advocating for immigrants and he's always seeming to be advocating for those underserved populations. His advocation for immigrants may be the reason that he loses the election to Abraham Lincoln in 1860. The immigrants that he's talking about in that period are? Irish Catholic immigrants. And why do they need advocacy at that particular period of time? One of our favorite stories that we tell uh, on our uh, on our tours here at the Seward House is in 1859, a lot of people, including William H. Seward, think that he will get the Republican nomination for president uh, that year. Matt McVitie, Director of Collections and Exhibitions at the Seward House Museum. He doesn't, of course, Abraham Lincoln gets that nomination. And one of the reasons being the Republican Party of the mid-19th century is cohesive in their views on the anti-slavery movement. But there's a lot of shades of gray in between. So one very famous abolitionist, Thaddeus Stevens, uh, who knows Seward and has worked with Seward in the past, is interviewed uh, in 1859. And he's asked, why are you giving your support to Abraham Lincoln, not William H. Seward? Mr. Seward has so much more political experience than Abraham Lincoln. Stevens replies, paraphrased, Why would I give my support to a guy that ruined the public schools in New York by letting all these immigrants in? Uh, And that story, in short, is that when Seward is governor of New York in 1838, he visits New York City and finds that there's something like 15,000 school-aged kids that are not going to school. He looks into this and finds out that they're almost all the children of Irish Catholic immigrants that will not send their children to the schools in New York because the school uses the King James Bible as its only textbook. Uh, And Seward is a a great believer in education being the great equalizer. So he takes a good chunk of state and a little bit of his own money and publishes a 207-volume set of books called The School District Library. And it's all math, language, science, non-denominational religion. He sends them to every school district within New York State and most prisons within New York State, saying this is what your curriculum is based on now. Not the King James Bible, but a, uh, a vast amount of subjects that any young mind would need to know. Uh, And this did upset a lot of prominent Republicans of the 19th century, one of the reasons why Seward does lose that nomination to Abraham Lincoln. Wow. Back to Billy for a second. Tell us about Frances, who she was, and why she took the stand she did. Frances Seward was the daughter of Elijah Miller, who builds this home in 1816. Uh, she is an educated young woman. She goes to Emma Willard School, uh, and she receives that education. 
but she's kind of quiet and in the background. So she's not someone that will go to uh, the Women's Rights Convention, for example, in Seneca Falls, although she will support that movement, but she will do so quietly. She will do so through letters. She will do so through hosting teas and making personal visits. So she's the, the quiet force behind some of Seward's thinking. She is his greatest supporter, but also his harshest critic. Alison Hinman, Director of Development at the Seward House Museum. And when he's making speeches about abolition, she would often write to him about the speech that he just gave. And in one letter, she writes to him and says that the speech fails to meet the approval of those who love him best. And so she is constantly pushing him to continue to address the issues that she sees as most important, like human rights and abolition. I'm listening to you speak about Frances and this relationship with her husband, and I'm hearing Abigail Adams a hundred years later, perhaps, as to who the character is. is. Is that kind of their role? I would say yes. I think that they worked together quite well uh, and that they truly were partners in making a lot of the political goals happen that Seward hoped to achieve. And Francis is always continuing to be a moral compass and continuing to drive him to, to be better and to do what's right. Seward often sends his speeches to Francis for approval beforehand. He thought of her opinion that much. Uh, that he would often write them out, uh, in fact, making multiple copies and sending them to her. As well, she did spend a good amount of time in Albany as well as Washington, D.C. She did not care for the role of the politician's wife uh, very much, but she did occasionally travel and view his speeches, see them, uh, and give him critical feedback. We might talk a bit about how we can draw parallels with um, activities and events happening in today's world um, that that can harken back or lead back to events happening in Seward's time. And this is one way that we like to interpret history uh, for the next generation. So what does the Underground Railroad experience, for example, tell us about perhaps human slavery, human trafficking in today's world? And how can we draw those parallels uh, to educate um, students of today, for example? And I think places like the Seward House, we have this wonderful, rich history, an amazing history, an authentic history. Um, but what makes it really um, poignant to today's audience is, is being able to say, and these things are still happening today, and we're still fighting some of these fights today, and we can draw examples from the past to help teach us about today. In 1840, locally, a guy by the name of William Freeman goes to prison for stealing a horse. Turns out he was actually framed for this, but he's still sent to the Auburn prison for five years. And he continually proclaims his innocence while he's in prison. When he's let out in 1845, people that knew him before he went in say he's a changed person. He can't remember his own name. He gets lost very easily, things like that. Uh, it turns out that he was subjected to some pretty brutal beatings in prison because of him continually proclaiming his innocence. He was hit in the head a lot, things like that. And then in 1845, that same year, the Van Nest family, locally in Fleming, is murdered. Uh, and it's clearly Freeman that does the deed. Uh, it's done in the late afternoon. Uh, he walks right into the front door of the Van Nest household and kills the entire family. Uh, he's caught a few hours later, put on trial. And over breakfast one morning, Mr. Seward is reading the newspaper, which has published what the prosecution's case is going to be, what their argument will be for the upcoming trial. Paraphrase, they say, because William Freeman is half African-American and half Native American, he's the product of two inferior races, and therefore predetermined to be violent and really a subhuman. This is not at all what William H. Seward agrees with, so he says, well, I'm going to meet with this gentleman. I want to know what's going on. And after one short 20-minute meeting, he says, this gentleman does not know where he is. He does not know his own name. He's insane, and I bet he's insane from all the head trauma that he received in prison. He uses the insanity plea for the third time in the United States. And his closing argument from that trial is, again, paraphrased, when I'm dead and gone, I want everyone to remember that I was faithful to humanity. Uh, and that is his epitaph on his gravestone. 
The Freeman trial is one of my favorite stories that we share with visitors, and Seward's closing arguments are actually quite lengthy. And in one of the paragraphs, if you read the trial transcript, he's asking them to hold Freeman to be a man, so hold him to be a man. And that is what you continue to see repeatedly, is to look at him as a person. I want to take you to the basement of the Seward House Museum. It's the original kitchen um, from the original construction, and we know that that was a site where passengers on the Underground Railroad were brought to, and it's documented. What happened in this room? This room represents the Underground Railroad in the Seward House. Why? Well, we call this room hollowed ground or hollowed space. Uh, and this was used as the stop in the Underground Railroad for two reasons. One, it had an exterior entrance at that point, uh, so people could come and go freely. Uh, and also, you can see in front of us, we have this big hearth here. So we have a nice heating source as well as a cooking source. The existing documentation suggests that uh, this was used continuously as a stop in the Underground Railroad, and usually for fugitive slaves that were then heading north to Oswego who would then go across Lake Ontario into Kingston, Ontario. It's after the fugitive slave law, so where do they hide? The windows would have been covered. However, everyone in the house was aware when visitors were visiting. When you mentioned Auburn, you said that Auburn was kind of a safe place, or, or but obviously slave catchers know to go to those places. In connecting the history then to what's going on now, it makes me think of sanctuary cities. Can you talk a little bit about what that would have meant at that period of time? Sure. So Syracuse, New York, which we're very, very close to, has recently come out as a sanctuary city. Uh, in fact, the uh, a newspaper article that we have in the collection states when the Fugitive Slave Law comes out that there are two cities within the United States that will not follow the Fugitive Slave Law, one being Boston, the other being Syracuse and central New York. And this area really just has a long history of human rights uh, support, uh, abolitionism, a haven for immigrants. It's really just embedded in the culture of central New York. Two incidents I'd like you to recall. One is one of the most surprising positive things that happens in Auburn that supports the Underground Railroad, and one is a surprising event that does not. One event that really supports the Underground Railroad is that within letters of the of the University of Rochester, within letters within our own collection, we really know that the Underground Railroad within Auburn was not a secret. There were many, many stops. I would say 80 to 90% of the population knew of its importance, its activeness within Auburn, yet it was accepted. Uh, one, however, as you mentioned earlier, uh, the Copperheads, or pro-slavery Northerners, were often, in fact, writing letters to places like New York City, where slave catchers would be, and saying, reporting that places like Auburn and other cities within central New York uh, are really becoming popular for fugitive slaves, uh, which does send a large influx of slave catchers to central New York. We talked earlier about the Freeman trial. William Freeman was a free African-American. He did run in some abolitionist circles. When William H. Seward takes on Freeman's case, that's kind of the last straw for a very small sect of Auburnians. While they start to throw bricks, logs, sticks, rocks, uh, flaming bottles at this actual house. So much so that William Seward has to build a stockade around the house made out of logs and things like that until the trial is over and until the sentiment of Auburn can be cooled. Go down, Moses, way down in Egypt land. Today on the Janice Adams Show, we're traveling a path through history in upstate New York. More after the break. Let my people go. Hey there, I'm Cassie of Rare Pair Radio. It's a weekly showcase of primarily female artists, but also a wide range of avant-garde musicians. I will be playing the fruit of post-punk, experimental, and fringe music, only on WJFF Radio Catskill. Rare Pair Radio, Friday at 8 p.m.
We're back here on the Janice Adams Show. We're taking a path through history in upstate New York. Wade in the water, God's gonna trouble the water. We're on the road to underground railroad sites in Rochester, a river city that welcomed a freeborn woman who'd risked her own freedom to sew the sailor suit that helped her enslaved husband-to-be defy bondage. Rochester, the city that welcomed that woman's self-emancipated husband and released his inner Frederick Douglass. A man who, in turn, put his hard-won freedom on the line to rescue others as abolitionist, women's rights champion, publisher, orator, statesman. Oh yes, black lives do matter, said they. Dr. David Anderson of Aquaba Tours is our guide. Let's pause right here in front of this building coming up a little bit more. And behind us on the left, this building on our left here is called Tallman Block. Right here on this corner was where Isaac Post uh, had his apothecary. Oh, I practiced that one word all night. His drugstore was a place where people would come, of course, for whatever he was selling. But it was also a place for information because he and his wife were probably the most active Quakers in this area. And they moved here a long time before Douglas arrived. They were probably helping more freedom seekers get to the north than anybody else in the area. And they were colleagues of, of Douglas as he would come here in 1847. But in that Tallman block, that where he had his drugstore. At the other end, there would be several offices. One was the Ladies Anti-Slavery Society. Sometimes Harriet Tubman coming through would meet with them and they'd give her a purse as she would go on to Canada. Douglas had his offices where his friends from England who came to work with him would hang out. It was the business office. At night, sometimes, when the office would be closed, boats would come up the canal and people might get off. And so the next morning when he arrives to open his, the doors of his office, he might find Freedom Seekers sitting on the steps waiting for him to come. He would contact his colleagues like Isaac and Amy Post and they would put together funds to help people as they moved on west and crossed over into Canada. This river was a major commercial route, especially for boats, because all along the river were mills. Because so many boats from different places came down the river, including those from Canada, it became one of the underground railroad exit sites. As you step onto this boat and come under the Canadian flag or the British flag, you are now free. You don't have to look back. We're going to take you on to freedom. One episode that we know of is documented where Douglas actually took people to Kelsey's Landing took place on 9-11-1851 when three men had been sent out of Pennsylvania because they had been a part of the resistance when a slaveholder from Maryland crossed the Cumberland River looking for his property. And when uh, there was a resistance by the colored people who were clustered in an area there, fights broke out and uh, the slaveholder was killed. And they sent these three men out. And uh, after several days wearing this costume and that costume, they finally arrived here in Rochester Somebody showed them the way to the Douglas home, and he welcomed them. And that night, he put them in his own carriage and drove down to Kelsey's Landing and saw them as they stepped on the boat and were free. And as we make the crest of the hill, now we're, we're past on the left here. Uh, slow down, slow down, slow down, right here. 
We're passing a bronze monument that points the way to Frederick Douglass here at the Mount Hope Cemetery. I made it. I'm just saying it's quite a pilgrimage. It's taken all my life to get here. My grandfather being a Garveyite, he 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 was an absolute uh, devout follower and adherer and teacher to us of Frederick Douglass and what his legacy meant to us at that point. And I feel as I'm saying to my grandfather without being dramatic, I made it. I'm here. What we're seeing here is uh, the flat monument to Frederick Douglass in raised embossed lettering and a seal that says 1818 to 1895. The raised gravestone of Frederick Douglass says to the memory of Frederick Douglass 1817 to 1895. And those two dates are important because whether 1817 or 1818, the fact that we have had to wonder speaks to what enslavement was about. Nobody cared enough about this person to document the actual day he was born the way they documented other people. They just simply said it wasn't important. And so a man had to spend most of his life trying to figure out something as basic as that. When was I born? But for those of us who now think we know when he was born or don't know when he was born, he made sure we knew why he was here. Someone has left a note that says, one of Douglas's most famous quotes, if there is no struggle, there is no progress. On top are stones that people have left, Lincoln head pennies, little memorials to say thank you to Frederick Douglass. There's an American flag posted at the head. And, ah, wow, that's important for Frederick Douglass to know. Someone left a sticker that has the American flag, and it says, I voted. This is also the burial site of his wife, Anna, died 1882. And on the right side, it says, Annie Douglas, daughter, died 1860. So among all the things they suffered, they even suffered together the loss of their daughter. Um, to the left of the flat monument is the gravesite of Douglas's second wife, Helen Pitts Douglas, 1838 to 1903, widow of orator and statesman Frederick Douglas whom he married after the death of his first wife, Anna Douglas, who was responsible for preserving a lot of the papers, etc., and then going on to preserve and memorialize the legacy of Frederick Douglass, who predeceased her by eight years. Dr. Anderson, what does being here tell you? What does it mean for you? I'm, of course, drawn to Ms. Pitts Douglas, who, who did so much to preserve uh, his remaining years and the the things that were accumulated in a lifetime. I'm certainly moved by Anna, who being born a month after her parents were manumitted, she becomes an independent person as, as a young woman that Douglas becomes husband and wife with and subsequently will bear the five children that have the Douglas name. And Annie. Annie, who is the only one of the five children born here in Rochester. Annie, who sat with John Brown for the month he stayed here in Rochester in 1858 and played games with him and, and marvel over the tools that he had, which was a compass and other drawing instruments which he would, was using to try to craft an escape route from the place he would eventually seize, Harper's Ferry. And it was she who wrote her father in 1860, Dear Father, I'm doing well in school. The children like me. I'm learning to speak German. 
and perhaps the next letter you get from me will be written in German. Father, Mr. Brown is dead. Those evil men took him out to a field and they hung him. John Brown's body lies molding in his grave, but his truth goes marching on. That was December 1859, nine days before her 11th birthday, March 1860. She's gone. There were various theories about what she died of, but I have come to the conclusion that it was, in fact, a broken heart. Will I ever see Daddy again? I'm so sorry that my friend, Mr. Brown, is gone. Why is Mama so ill all these times? What is this world about? And so the little girl gave up the ghost. Annie was the life and light of my house, quote-unquote, says Frederick Douglass. That's all I got to say. Sweet chariot Coming for to carry me home When you talk about Annie's despondency over the loss of John Brown, and her father, who she may never see again, let's talk about why she feared that she might never see her father again. He is in self-imposed exile based on the fact that although he did not favor Brown's seizing of the federal arsenal at Harper's Ferry, in fact, they argued all night in August of 1859 that what a foolish Thing that would be to do and then he said I'm going back to Rochester to know what I know how to do best which is to agitate 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 and he did that and when Brown seized the arsenal in October of that year he only had it for roughly a day because Colonel Robert E. Lee the United States Army later to become General Robert E. Lee Confederate Army retook the arsenal the following day and Brown was imprisoned for a while, tried and hung. And but in the meantime, a warrant is out for Frederick Douglass as a party in the seizing of the federal property. And he knows and his friends insist that he leave else he too be tried and with the disfavor going so strong based on the seizing of the arsenal, he too would be following John Brown to the hangman's noose. And also what they threatened because 1859 is just nine years after the inaction of the fugitive slave law. Mm -hmm. They want to kidnap Frederick Douglass as the greatest symbol of a self-emancipated slave, and they want to kidnap him and sell him into slavery to make that point. So Frederick Douglass's life and liberty, no matter how they cut it, is going to be in danger. His supporters prevail upon him to leave. He actually does not want to leave. But when they impress upon him that he will either be kidnapped or executed, he does think about his family and makes the decision that he will have to leave. He goes to London and he then advocates once again for the end of enslavement, for the abolitionist cause, and to help rescue people from the clutches of this kind of degradation. I want to turn the microphone on my colleague, Jason Dole, because we are standing out in the rain and you made the comment that for Frederick Douglass, you would stand out in the rain. What does being here mean to you? It's something we've come across so many times on this trip, and here we are near the end of this particular trip at the gravesite of Frederick Douglass. And what it does is it brings 
this history closer to this moment for me. It brings me not just closer to uh, this man and his family and what he did and what he stood for, but it brings what they fought for closer to this moment. It's too easy for us to forget with a short span of people's lifetimes that this is just a few generations ago, you know, and the fact that you say your, your father was born, you know, 1890. He was alive, you know, same time as Frederick Douglass. 1895 was when Douglas was passed. Daddy was a little boy. Frederick Douglass's words uh, come to us, uh, you know, through history. I'm sure they came to me in school and I read about him, but they came to life with uh, the PBS documentary about the Civil War. And he was one of the, the clarion voices that cut through that really were letting us know what that whole era, what that whole time was about. So that, that's what it means for me to be out here in the rain. But what really makes it worth it to hear uh, Dr. Adams and Dr. Anderson uh, saying what it means to them for the journey that their forefathers put them on. Well, thank you. I mean, I am really just awestruck by finally being here. I have been to his home. I had been to Cedar Hill. With his newspaper having been firebombed, I had the privilege of having found, really, in the corner of an old antiquarian bookstore in Upper Connecticut, I found this corner of a newspaper, and it ended up being 10 original copies of the Frederick Douglass newspaper that I purchased that day. And those 10 newspapers, there were a couple that had a little interior space about the width of a finger and about two inches long cut out. And we couldn't figure out what these little cutouts were. And we found that well into the 1880s and 1890s, people were still being endangered for even having them. And they had been used to line a drawer. The little piece was cut out to preserve them, but render them innocuous. So it was just like any other newspaper that people used to use to line a drawer. Only thing, these were Frederick Douglass's newspapers. And among the 10 copies I had, so it makes this story you telling about little Annie even more poignant and personal to me. One copy was the John Brown raid. One copy was the trial. And one copy was the execution. And in those papers, Frederick Douglass writes his last editorial. And he says why he is having to leave the United States. And he talks about the government of the United States deciding that they were going to kidnap him and sell him into slavery and how his friends prevailed upon him to to leave. And I, what can I say? You know, I, that is saying it all. If you can hear my voice, you can you can hear what I'm feeling as as I say that, because when I'm looking at the news and I'm seeing people because they are called Mexican, whether they are from Mexico or not, I am thinking of seeing those people today just rounded up and put into shackles and made a big show of it so that it's on the news, not for us to say, oh my God, how could this be happening again? But for us to take pride in our government's ability to do this again. And for that reason and more, we must not only remember Frederick Douglass and those people of every hue who came together in the cause of justice, we have to understand it as a part of our reality and a part of our possibility. Go down, Moses, Today on the Janice Adams Show, our special thanks to our guests and guides, to singers Hattie Winston and Max Smith, and to I Love New York. More information on New York State history is available at iloveny.com. For more information about today's show, visit my website, janusadams.com. That's J-A-N-U-S-Adams.com. From the studios of WJFF Radio Catskill, thanks for joining us today. I'm Janice Adams.
Support comes from the Homestead School, Montessori Education, preschool through early college with campuses in Glens Bay and Hurleyville, building the intelligence, creativity, connection, and skills for an ecological future since 1978. Homesteadschool.com. From the River Reporter newspaper in Narrowsburg, New York, riverreporter.com. And from listener donations at WJFF.